0: Hi and welcome to Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today for episode 302, SeedSigner, the pseudonymous creator of the SeedSigner project joins me. So if you have been thinking about this idea of cheap hardware wallets or potentially trying to play around with multi-signature with a QR code wallet, This is a great episode for you. This is a low-cost, accessible, DIY-style hardware device that can be part of your multi-seed quorum or potentially used as a single signature device. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. I've recently joined the team at Swan, so I'm the managing director of Swan International. So obviously, Swan is available internationally. You can sign up and wire in USD and purchase Bitcoin that way. Don't forget about Swan Private. This is a specialized service for high net worth individuals, businesses, corporates, trusts or other entities who might need a hand. And so if you know some new coiners or pre-coiners in your life who fit this category, send them over to us. Go, send them to swanbitcoin.com private and they can fill out the form there and someone from the team will get in touch with them and help them get set up to stack Bitcoin. Bitcoin can have DeFi as well. Lend at HODLHODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform so you can lend out stable coins or borrow against your Bitcoin. And this is global and anonymous. So you can earn extra income on, on your stable coins. And on the other hand, if you need some Bitcoin and you don't want to sell, Well, now you can borrow against that Bitcoin and collateralize instead. And there's no rehypothecation. You still hold one key in the two of three multi multi-signature controlling your Bitcoin during that loan period. So this is a peer to peer lending and borrowing market. You set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Getting involved with Bitcoin mining is getting a lot more popular. So compassmining.io are helping you do that because you can go to the website, you can select an ASIC and select a hosting facility, and then you select your mining pool, and now you'll start mining Bitcoin. The cool thing with Compass is they are making it accessible. So rather than having to use residential power rates, you can find good power rates at a facility that has been vetted by the Compass team. And if you couldn't access Bitcoin mining equipment and ASICs, well, now Compass Mining can help you with that too. So if you wanna get started, go to compassmining.io. Now onto the show with Seed Siner. Seed signer, welcome to the show. So glad to
1: be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, so just for listeners, Seed signer is operating under a pseudonym, so I'm just gonna be calling him Seed or Seed Siner. So uh, Seed, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how this uh, project came about? What was the inspiration?
1: So it's it's actually a full circle kind of journey to be talking with you today because um, my journey with Seed signer. Started uh, probably mid to late last year with an episode that you did with Michael Flaxman on his 10x Bitcoin Security Guide, and that kind of nice. that kind of uh, launched my journey down the rabbit hole.
0: Fantastic. So, uh, where are you coming from? A developer background, or like more like a hardware guy? What was what was the um, like what were the main skills required in this project?
1: So I have um, a unique background that I've talked a little bit about before. Not sure if you're familiar with it, but I'm actually a retired police officer. Um, And I spent the majority of my career uh, in law enforcement working as a digital forensics uh, examiner. Oh, okay. I was, um, you know, to give you a little bit of my backstory, I was a local cop, you know, the kind of guy who wears a uniform, drives a police car, answers, you know, calls for fight in progress, that kind of thing. And uh, the chief of the police agency I was working for knew I had a background in computers. I'd studied computers a little bit in college and have always kind of been uh, leaning kind of in the direction of uh, being involved in computers. And there was a a newer digital forensic working group um, that was starting up in our area. And he asked me if I I had any interest in joining that. And I, of course, jumped at it. So I uh, drank from the fire hose um, the forensic fire hose for the first few years just attending training and getting caught up but my my everyday work for 12 plus years of my career was in a digital forensic lab taking apart phones and computers and hard drives and attempting to um, attempting to get data off of devices to see if the data would support prosecutions and uh, so that gives me kind of a unique technical background from a hardware perspective but as a di- digital forensic Practitioner, you kind of have to be a, a, a generalist in that you know a little bit about everything. You know, we know a little bit about how data is stored in binary fashion, a little bit about operating systems, user artifacts, how data is stored in the cloud, how different hardware devices work, and what kind of vulnerabilities they have. But more specifically, with my forensic background, one of the things that uh, informed some of my journey with SeedSigner was this concept of air gapping. And A lot of people may not be familiar with uh, mobile phone forensics, but best practice in mobile phone forensics is that you're isolating a phone that you're doing an analysis on from the internet in any kind of way. So that's the parent kind of cellular network, but that's also Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And a lot of uh, digital forensic practitioners have these large uh, boxes like glove boxes or even like entire rooms that are... they call faraday shielded and all that means is that there's special shielding in the door and the walls that block uh radio signals so once you go into that room you close the door if you have say your personal phone up in there you're going to notice the bars very rapidly go to zero your wi-fi is going to go away um so this this concept of air gapping uh devices and being able to isolate channels of, of communication that devices usually use it was something that was in my background and that also kind of applies to um examining hard drives and stuff using write blockers i don't want to get too too deep into that but um you asked kind of my background so yeah sure uh, i i'm kind of a l- little bit of a jack of all trades with uh, a bunch of different kind of hardware and, and software kind of skills
0: yeah well it's great to hear that uh my show was in in some way able to uh, help uh, create, uh, influence the creation of uh, other projects that are pushing it forward. I'm sure uh, Michael Flaxman, uh, well, I think he's actually, he's been uh, commenting a little bit on the project himself as well. Um, and so essentially, just for listeners who aren't familiar, it's essentially a, a new type of DIY hardware wallet device, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that and what are the key features at a headline level for people?
1: Sure, and if if it would be okay, um. If I can continue the backstory just a little bit with the podcast so so people get a sense of how that ties in. So I'm listening to your podcast with Michael Flaxman. I'd never heard of Spectre, uh, Spectre Desktop, Spectre Wallet, and was really intrigued by some of the security concepts that he brought up in his paper and in his conversation with you. So I am looking to transition at that point to a new Bitcoin security model. I'd been wanting to get to multi-sig, but it didn't feel, at least with my knowledge at the time, on what was out there, that multi-sig had kind of gotten to that point where it was more user-friendly and easier to interact with. But after I heard about Spectre, I was eager eager to give it a try. So I download Spectre and I start looking at the options within the software and I'm looking in their GitHub repo and I noticed that they have this uh, uh, additional kind of side project called a Spectre DIY or a do-it-yourself um, signing device, which is kind of akin to a hardware wallet. Um, and I've You know, like I referenced a little bit of a background in hardware, so it didn't seem like a a huge lift. So I ordered the components and uh, assembled the DIY hardware signer that they have uh, in a separate repo. And what I tell people is, so I set up a multi-sig wallet and I use kind of the uh, signing mechanism where you use... QR codes, QR codes, animated QR codes, are how you move the partially signed Bitcoin transaction from the multi sig coordinator, in this case Spectre, into the signing device. And you review the transaction details. The signing device is an isolated offline device where your private key is stored. And if you approve the transaction, you can communicate that partially signed transaction back to the multi sig coordinator again via QR codes. The first time I did that with a Spectre DIY, it was like a magical light bulb moment. It was like the first time I sent a Bitcoin transaction, the first time I used Lightning. It was just holding the QR codes up to my web cameras, uh, uh, my webcam, and seeing once it had uh, ingested the partially or the now it was a fully signed transaction, and it pops up on the seat on the screen that one of your cosigners has approved it and it's ready to send. Like that was magical for me, and so I started thinking around with uh, Specter DIY. A little bit more, and Michael Flaxman had made a tweet that he really loved the DIY, but he was hoping that someone would make a, an enclosure for it, a case. I have a little bit of a background in like uh, three-dimensional design and 3D printing, so I made a case for it, and I DM'd him, and we started interacting a little bit. I also started interacting with uh, Stepan and Moritz from, from Spectre about the case design and stuff, and Michael communicated to me that he had this idea for using a very specific version of the Raspberry Pi. It's called the Raspberry Pi Zero, and there's an even more specific version of the Zero called a version 1.3. And the secret sauce in that specific version of the Pi is that it's a smaller form factor than what a lot of uh, people use in nodes, and it does not have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth built into it. So it doesn't have that hardware functionality, so it's a naturally kind of isolated, uh, air-gapped kind of device. And Michael had talked about using that particular device to calculate the final checksum word for a seed phrase. If, if uh, a lot of your listeners are aware, you can generate a Bitcoin seed by just pulling, you know, 11 or 23 uh, seed words out of a, you know, a hat basically. But that last word operates as kind of a checksum against the first 11 or the first 23 words to verify that uh, everything comes together. So his idea was to use this very, specific version of a Raspberry Pi Zero that was isolated uh, from the internet to be able to securely calculate that checksum word. So you'd be able to generate a Bitcoin private key in a, in a pretty secure way without having worried about it having come into contact with the internet. He also pointed me towards like a little uh, display and control uh, module that looks really kind of like a a very small video game that has a joystick, a tiny screen that's 240 by 240 pixels, and a few buttons. And uh, he said, what if we could combine these and you'd kind of independently be able to set this up, enter the words, and it would calculate the final checksum word. Um, that seemed kind of like a an interesting uh, project. And with uh, Python being kind of native to the Raspberry Pi operating system, I started brushing up on my programming. I'd taken a little bit of Java in the past, but I spent you know, a lot of time on Udemy, um, learning the basics of Python and a lot of time on Google and Stack Overflow, kind of banging my head against the wall with different errors. But um, kind of in my living room, just iterating step-by-step step with these components. Can I run the manufacturer's test code? Can I make my own image appear on the screen? Can I make letters appear on the screen? Can I use... The letters to collect words. And finally, I got to the point where I'd uh, achieved the function of inputting, say, 23 words, and then outputting that 24th word. Um, and I threw the kind of proof of concept out on Twitter, and, and it, people seemed to react favorably to it. And I still kept thinking about my experience with Spectre DIY. And I started wondering if I added an inexpensive camera to the Raspberry Pi Zero with the camera and the screen and the controls, could I possibly replicate replicate that that basic air gapped QR exchange um, signing capability that had been so magical to me with the Spectre DIY? And in the process, like I, I kind of joke that my main contribution to Seed Signer has been being a cheapskate, <laughs> but I wanted to see how far I could drive down the price for that like basic air-gapped QR exchange signing experience. So I started iterating with the code some more and kind of updating people on Twitter and started to get more and more interest and eventually got to the point where uh, I released like a very basic clumsy proof of concept, but it worked. Like you could fire up Spectre Desktop, you could use Seed Signer to set up a very simple, like one of two or two of three multi-sig wallet where it was all of the signers. And then you could ingest... Uh, using the camera, ingest a partially signed transaction, approve it on the device, and then communicate it back to Spectre uh, to where the transaction was ready to broadcast. So that was that's really kind of the, the journey from uh, you talking to Michael Flaxman to me kind of uh, just banging my head against the wall with this hardware, trying to get the basic functionality there.
0: Yeah, that's really a cool story to hear. Uh, and so it's funny because in some ways this whole idea of low cost hardware wallets, even though they may not have the secure element that uh, some of the more premium hardware wallets will have, as an example, right, like the ledgers of the world or the cold cards of the world. But despite, like as Michael Flaxman explains, you could theoretically make an argument as to how having multi-signature, even with cheaper devices distributed into different locations, you might actually be more secure than using a single signature premium hardware wallet device.
1: Right, I, I think you know there are trade offs as with any kind of security decisions you make when you're deciding how to how to store your Bitcoin. But um, one of the things I like about multisig is that it's a little bit more forgiving. In that, with a single hardware wallet, like if something happens with the wallet and for some reason you don't have your seed or it wasn't backed up properly, um, it's it's hard to come back from that. But with multisig, um, you know the the larger the number of signers you have, typically the the more little bit more room for error you have if you should happen to have a signer compromised or if for whatever reason you you lose access to the private key so it's it i think there are some advantages to that even though you know i have to acknowledge belt and suspenders multi-sig is uh, a mix of different code bases and hardware manufacturers and maybe even signing protocols um to kind of have that resilience, so that if one particular platform fails because of a, a vulnerability, the rest of your cosigners are, are unaffected.
0: Gotcha. And so, speaking of the cost, then, can you give us an overview? What is the rough cost in U.S. dollars in terms of parts to create a seed signer? Sure. It's it's probably um, at this point just
1: makes sense to to quickly step through the different parts. So we have the Raspberry Pi Zero I mentioned before, specifically the Virgin uh, 1.3. Prices on that will vary. If you're an American and you happen to live next to a, a micro center, which is a large kind of like a electronic box store, you can actually walk in with cash and walk out with one of those for five bucks. In Also in America, um, through the Adafruit website, you can order, you know, if you're willing to pay with a credit card and give up your... Uh, Give up an address, I should say. You can find one for $10 with shipping included if you're okay with it going through just the regular post and not any sort of uh, accelerated shipment. Uh, if you go on Amazon, you're probably going to pay a bit more. The, the prices on Amazon are more. So let's say roughly $10 for a Pi Zero, maybe $15. In addition to the Pi Zero, we have the display and controls that I mentioned, which is a very specific version of a Wave, wave Share. Um, uh, they call it a display hat. And that I would price between $13 if you buy it directly from Waveshare up to 17 or 18 if you buy it on Amazon. Uh, on Amazon, it is Prime eligible, so the 17 or $18 is like a real price shipped to you. And then third main component you have is like a very basic Raspberry Pi camera module. And those are kind of commodity hardware because there's a bunch of them out there. With different brand names that are all kind of the same basic hardware profile that are kind of rebranded. That camera, you also need to make sure you get a cable with it that's compatible with the Zero. There's two types of, of Raspberry Pi camera cables, one of which is, is compatible with like the Raspberry Pi uh, 234, the, the larger ones that people use in their nodes, but the Zero is a, is a different Camera cable that just one of the ends is a little bit smaller to uh, be compatible with the smaller form factor of the zero. So the camera, I I can get them for as little as $4 on Amazon here. That may not be the case, obviously, for people anywhere in the world. So let's say 10 bucks for the camera. So we've got, say, $15 for the Pi, $15 for the WaveShare display and controls and then maybe ten dollars for the camera that gets us to45 dollars you've got some shipping in there maybe yes maybe no but I like to say about 50 bucks or less than 50 bucks that's not going to be true for everywhere in the world some people pay a little less some people pay a little bit more but um, that's kind of the the general uh, uh, consensus amount that we're on right now
0: yeah very impressive in terms of the low cost and the ability to have a QR air-gapped wallet and so this might also have applications for people out there who want to, are just getting started with Bitcoin and maybe they can't justify paying the higher prices for the more premium hardware wallets. And this is just a way for them to get started. And they could even start with it, with this as a single signature setup, couldn't they? Yeah. And then later graduate up into a multi-signature setup.
1: Right. And that's actually how um, one of our, our uh, lead developers Nick found the project. I think he was just looking on GitHub at, at Bitcoin, you know, wallet related projects. And he had been at a point where he was curious to start just playing around with multi-sig more and setting up kind of a test wallet and was a little bit put off that even to just get a simple two of 3 multisig, like you have to either have them where you need to, to uh, say, purchase like either a mixture of hardware devices like a Trezor and a, and a cold card or a ledger or something like that. But you're... You can spend, you know, easily two or three hundred dollars just kind of getting the basic three wallets you need to set up uh, a multisig. But if you um, if you just want to get started playing with it, and especially I encourage people, um, we're comp- fully compatible with testnet, so jump on testnet. But yeah, with that one device, it can act as as many s- signers in a multisig quorum as as you'd like it to. So you can hit the ground running with um, hit the ground running with multisig and start setting up different wallets and getting more. Uh, familiar with the signing process and also like you said we're single sig compatible so this air-gapped QR exchange is also a model that a lot of people are less familiar with because it's a it's a newer kind of way of moving the partially signed transaction back and forth and our device is also a way for people just to get some exposure to that model and i think it's it's really kind of intuitive to a lot of people that once they have built it or they get their hands on one and they kind of experience it for the first time. I, I really think it's intuitive and it gives you that that kind of like little bit of magic feeling that I was talking about earlier. Um, and it also allays some of the, the hardware wallet profile, uh, sorry, the hardware wallet devices that have a secure element and where you plug it into your computer via USB. I My background in digital forensics was such that whenever, say, I had a piece of evidence that was plugged into... Uh, A machine that I was working on, say I was doing an evidence acquisition, we would always use this thing called a write blocker. And a write blocker is really just kind of like a one-way valve for data. So if I take a thumb drive and I plug it into a write blocker, that ensures that I can only read from that device and that I can't modify that piece of evidence by, you know, inadvertently or even uh, intentionally pushing any sort of data to it. So, from my experience in the forensic world, when I see like a hardware wallet plugged into my laptop, just plugged straight in, it just makes me a little uncomfortable because I know that there's a lot of possibilities with that protocol. If I was updating the firmware or as it's moving, you know, signatures back and forth um, you just don't know what's going on with that hardware connection. Whereas this uh, QR exchange, it's a very, sort of constrained protocol that your laptop and the signing device use to communicate. And I I just get a better feeling because the only way that SeedSigner can ingest data is with that um, camera that, that is incorporated in the device via QR codes. And the only way it can talk to your laptop is through QR codes. Now, human beings aren't fluid in QR codes. We can't uh, decode that just by looking at them, but uh, it, it just... It's a much more constrained communication protocol if if that makes sense
0: yeah and i think this is something when i'm often talking to a a new coiner or maybe someone who's never used a hardware wallet that's often a way i'll explain it is i'll say imagine you had a house with you know 10 doors and 20 windows and then you had a house with only one door in and one door out well which one's easier to protect right so it's it's kind of like that a similar kind of idea
1: yeah that's great perspective Yeah. yeah
0: um and so speaking a little bit about the way so if, just for listeners who might never have used a QR wallet before, so you, you know, listeners, you might have been using a phone wallet before, or maybe you've used, say, a Trezor or a Ledger, or those kinds of devices where you plug them in. Well, in this case, the computer will show you a QR code, and you scan that with this hardware wallet, and then it will show you the details, saying, "Oh, hey, do you want to send zero point one Bitcoin to this address? Yes or no?" And then you know, you you hit yes, and then it approves, and then it will show you. The QR code and that QR code is now the you know the signed version of that transaction and now it may have it may only be one of three or two of three or however many signatures and then you would then have to show that back to your computer and basically show your computer this QR code and that computer will then ingest that using its webcam and then you know that's where you know Specter Desktop or Sparrow can uh, help you coordinate that across multiple devices and so
1: and if I if I could kind of Jump in and point out it takes what people know as the traditional hardware model and kind of breaks it into different components. Because if you, I'll just use um, Ledger in as as an example. So if you use Ledger to set up a Bitcoin wallet, you are you know of course generating the private key on Ledger and then you connect Ledger to your computer and you interact with their software interface where um, you're using kind of their their portal to the blockchain, and they help you assemble the transaction and help you broadcast it and such. And this kind of different model with um, the air gap signers breaks it into what I'd call like three different components. There's first uh, the wallet coordinator, which is your Specter or Sparrow, or even Blue Wallet um, can function in that way. So you have your your wallet coordinator, or I'll also sometimes refer to it as a multi-sig coordinator, because that is what basically puts together the multi-sig components and helps them make sense to the protocol. So you have your coordinator, and then you have a signing device, which is like a Spectre DIY or a seed signer, and then you have your private key storage. And with the signing device, what happens with it is our particular signing device is stateless. And what that means is that when you power it on, you have to enter your seed phrase into it, which represents your private key. So now your private key is live on that device. But with our platform, it's not written to the memory card. It just exists as a a variable in memory in the Python code, code, such that when you remove power from the device, like I said, it's not saved to the memory card, so it just goes away with memory. But at any rate, with the signing device, after you've entered your, your your seed, which represents your private key, and then you ingest, like you referenced, that partially signed transaction, I think it's important to emphasize to people that your private key never leaves that device. It's, it's not communicated within the QR code somehow back to the multisig coordinator um, using cryptographic signatures. The signing device just proves that it has knowledge of the key. Through those signatures, and those are what it communicates back to the multi-sig coordinator. It's a little bit of a nuance, but it's critical to the, the the security model. So again, you have multi-sig coordinator, you have that signing device, and then you have your seed storage or your private key storage, which a lot of people use in addition to just writing their seed on a piece of paper. Uh, they'll also etch it into metal or use washers to kind of stamp the the letters in, or kind of one of those uh, similar different uh, mechanisms.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So then putting that into an example, as an example, we might have a two of three multi-signature setup, they could be using, say, a cold card as one of the keys, mm-hmm. they could be using a seed signer as another key, and maybe specter DIY as another key. And so you might have three different locations. And with each location, you might have, say, the metal seed backup for that location. Even, I mean, obviously, there are different um, ways to go about this, you could even have six locations and have the the seed backups in, you know, different locations. Right. But I guess but actually sorry in the seed signer case you would want to have the metal backup with the seed signer itself because you would need to retype in the seed words when you do the signatures right but that's not a huge deal if we're talking about you know long-term cold storage that you very very rarely access and so you might have you know i mean just to keep the example simple it might be three locations so three hardware wallet devices and three metal seed backups right you might have the cypher grid uh, from my sponsor cyphersafe.io or, or um uh, yeah, you, or one of the other metal products, and then you might need to bring some power with you when you go out to the location because you need, say, a mobile phone power bank, and then you can plug that into your seed signer to then give it enough juice to, you know, do the operation. And you might have, say, a laptop with specter desktop on it, and that's where you're kind of going back and forward. So, you bring that laptop around to do the multi sig transaction uh, in the different location. So, I guess that's an example of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great example.
1: Yeah. And I'd also point out that, um, first off, you, you mentioned that for holders, um, it's less cumbersome. And I, I definitely want to reinforce that the the impetus for the device um, seed signer is to reduce the cost and complication of multi sig. And we're really kind of zoned in on areas uh, where people don't have. Two or $300 laying around to buy various hardware wallets. So our device as it currently exists is optimized for savings. So it's it's a little cumbersome in that you have to enter your seed details every time you power it on. But for somebody who's using Bitcoin primarily as a savings mechanism and making more deposits and relatively few spends over time, it's really not a huge uh, encumbrance for the use of it. But I'd also point out, um, this is a recent feature that's been added by, uh, I want to give a shout out to... Keith McKay, who kind of pioneered this, um, to reduce the friction and being able to ingest your seed back into SeedSigner, he came up with this very clever uh, interface within SeedSigner to where, you know, the first time you have your 24 words or your 12 words and you input them into SeedSigner, it validates that, you know, the checksum word's correct and that's a valid seed and it gives you the opportunity to to using a template, uh, using basically a piece of paper and a Sharpie, you can print out a QR code template and use a Sharpie and it will display a grid view of a zoomed in QR code on the screen. And you can, grid square by grid square, transcribe uh, the QR code onto a sheet of paper that represents your seed such that any time in the future when you wanna power on your seed signer and ingest your seed instead of typing in those, those seed words, you can just actually scan this QR code and instantaneously your your seed is ingested into seed signer and validated that it's it's a good seed and you can move right on to signing. There's a still a little bit of friction that it's gonna take you maybe five or ten minutes with with a marker to sketch out this uh this QR code, but QR codes are super forgiving and I've done it and for the, the convenience of being able to instantaneously import your seed like five or ten minutes to color in some squares is is a pretty good trade-off. But um I'll also point out that uh, if people are worried about that seed QR, uh, we also implemented um, BIP39 passphrases such that in addition to your 24-word seed or your 12-word seed, you can also do the what they sometimes refer to as Word 25 or just a passphrase. That's an additional layer of security for your seed. So when you're in an example where I'm traveling to a location maybe where my seed's sco- stored, One possible workflow is, you know, I have my seed signer with a little power bank so so that it's powered. I go to the trusted friend's house or the safe deposit box. I get there, I either manually input my 12 or 24 words, or maybe I just scan in the QR code that I've uh, manually transcribed there. And then maybe I go to multiple other locations and I can input seeds into seed signer as well, knowing that these seeds are protected by a word 25. And it's not until I get back to my home where I have Spectre set up and I have the wallet set up. Those seeds are basically useless until the uh, Word 25 passwords. Gotcha. Are entered into the device
0: as well. I mean, you can yeah. So each device can have its own little layer of additional protection. Right. right. As an example, you might have a passphrase on each of the different devices. Uh, it could be the same passphrase, or it could be a different one for each device. Again, depends how complex you want to make it and how secure you want to make it. Um, and so, I guess also just thinking out loud, another example setup you could do. Let's say you wanted to do a two of three multi-signature. Mm-hmm. But also here, we're going to exploit this idea that Seed Signer is a stateless device. So we're going to do a two of three with one device. And so you might, as an example, have three different locations and have the metal seed backup for each of those in the three different locations. And you just have, you know, in your backpack, you've got your laptop with Spectre desktop on it and you walk around with one Seed Signer device and to each location you go around, ingest the 12 or 24 words, sign sign that you know part of the transaction and then move on to the second location and do the same with that and so that way you've actually got like a two or three multi-seed but using only one device but obviously you would still have three seeds backed up across three locations right
1: right and um i i could take it a step further and say like Let's throw out uh, El Salvador as, as an example. As a stateless device, even a few households could share this device. And if they want an additional layer of protection, maybe they each just have their own micro SD card that contains that contains a firmware that they've loaded themselves that they feel like they can trust without worrying about, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, do they call it the housekeeper attack or the maid attack?
0: Evil maid attack, yeah.
1: Right. And so it's it's something that as a stateless device, it can actually be shared by multiple different parties to use their multi-sig. That's kind of a, an additional feature. Um and we're also working on some additional improvements such that users can feel like they have an additional layer of security where they can power on the seed signer. This isn't a live feature yet, but it's it's um, well into development. You'll be able to power on seed signer and once the device is fully up and running, you can actually remove the micro SD card and it still functions normally. This for one advantage of that is is that it gives users kind of an additional uh, layer of reassurance that their seed is not somehow being leaked onto the micro SD card inadvertently. Um, and we've taken you know several steps to ensure that doesn't happen. But if you're physically removing the seed before you put your um, your words in, like you you. That's an additional layer of assurance. The other thing it opens up for us is is the ability for people who prefer to move uh, partially signed transactions with a memory card. We should be able to implement a system where, with a different micro SD card, you can pop it in, and maybe it has a partially signed transaction in it. Seed signer will recognize and ingest that, display the details, and then add the necessary signatures so you can eject it, pull it out, and put it into your laptop. So we've got um, kind of some interesting improvements. But to get back to the original idea. Like we're really trying to optimize for places where people are saving in Bitcoin and they may not have the resources for a bunch of hardware wallets so they can even share this between households.
0: Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about your backups? Don't just rely on that piece of paper that comes with your hardware wallet. Get a metal product. The Cypher Grid is a new product coming from cyphersafe.io and this one is the best value in the industry. You get everything you need for $59. It's two stainless steel plates you get a tamper evidence seal provided. You can lock this one with a padlock and you also get an automatic center punch provided. So you basically use that center punch to punch in letters on your 12 or 24 word seed. And just like all CypherSafe products, this is made from stainless steel. It's fireproof, rust proof, and waterproof. Go to cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera to get a discount on yours. My favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet is the cold card. You can get this at coinkite.com. And this is the Bitcoiners choice. So if you have left your coins on the exchange or maybe you want to upgrade your hardware wallet, think about the cold card. You can use this one air-gapped. So you can get a micro SD card and shuttle the transactions or the Xpub back and forth between the cold card and your computer. And you can use it easily with wallets like Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or Electrum or even Blue Wallet. The cold card offers all sorts of advanced features. It's PSBT native and you can do things like check your receive address on the address explorer. So it's got all sorts of advanced features. Make sure you go and check out coinkite.com and use the code levera to order yours with a discount. As number is going up it's time to start thinking about multi-signature for your coins and unchained capital are helping you do just this. So don't just rely on a single signature wallet. If you're coins value is starting to rise significantly well you really need to think about eliminating single points of failure because no matter how careful we are sometimes things can go wrong and you want to be confident that you're not just going to see your savings go to zero unchained can help you set up a two of three multi-signature vault where you hold two and they hold one. They've even got a concierge service, which is quite popular now. You get personal one-to-one guidance. They ship you the hardware wallets, and they teach you, even if you've never held your own private keys before. So this is a great way to do it if you're not sure how to improve your security. So if you want to sign up, go to unchanged-capital.com concierge, get $50 off with the promo code Levera. Back to the show. Okay, so yeah, there's this idea that it can be used in low-cost Scenarios and that can help in different jurisdictions where obviously the wealth levels are different to the wealth levels that you and I enjoy in the Western world. Now that is an example where it can be dramatically made more accessible, right? If it's only fifty dollars for a hardware wallet device, and that device can now be shared across multiple people, well, then dramatically now there's a lot more possibility there. I know even in in the example of Bitcoin Beach with in El Zonte in El Salvador, they they, as part of that wallet, they have a multi-signature setup using Specter Desktop, I think, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And so, different places around the world could incorporate Seed Signer as part of that multi-signature setup, or you know, as part of the the way they implement that. So, I guess the next question I'm curious: what kind of technical skill is required to create this thing, or could there be maybe a market formed for people who just want to buy it outright? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, and if if I could also. Um kind of touch back on, on what you were saying about helping out in El Salvador, um, another kind of advantage of our model, and it's just trade-offs, you know, in terms of our signing device versus, you know, hardware wallets, um, another kind of advantage is that for people who, um, are very privacy focused, say I, have had contact with people living in the Middle East, and they don't feel like they want to signal that they're saving in Bitcoin, or they don't feel like they can trust the hardware wallet resellers where they are, like the hardware may have been tampered with, or maybe they just don't want anybody to know um, that they're using Bitcoin, or maybe they don't want to provide their information to uh, a Bitcoin company because they see that as potentially like a violation of their operational security. The nice thing about seed Center is you can buy the parts online and none of the parts are explicitly Bitcoin related. So you can... Get all, the, get all of the components, put it together, and you haven't necessarily signaled to any sort of wallet company or any sort of Bitcoin-focused company that you're intending to uh, buy or build a wallet and store Bitcoin and interact with the Bitcoin network. So I, I just wanted to point that out while we were talking about kind of the, the hardware side of it. But to get back to your question about the technical skill that's required, uh, the biggest hurdle with, if you're going to build it from just bare components, is that it is hard to find that specific version of the Raspberry Pi Zero, uh, the one point three, it is hard to find it with GPIO pins installed. And if people uh, aren't familiar with the GPIO pins, those are that's the set of forty pins that you see that do come pre-installed on the larger versions of the Raspberry Pi. Um, so you're going to have to go through like one of two directions to get the GPIO pins on a Raspberry Pi Zero. The first of which is if you're comfortable trying it or you know somebody who can solder, you can buy the pins and attach them uh, yourself that way with a soldering iron, but understandably that's a little more advanced. Or there's also this device called a GPIO hammer and uh, listeners can just do an internet search for that and it's it's on Amazon. It's on a lot of the other kind of like hardware tinkering websites and that includes like a jig. It's a little more expensive option. I think it's maybe 15 bucks. But it lets you, uh, with a jig and a hammer, just kind of tap the pins into place. So that, like I said, that's the biggest hurdle is getting those GPIO pins onto the Pi Zero. Beyond that, it is just uh, attaching a ribbon cable to the camera module and Pi Zero, and then it's pushing the WaveShare LCD hat just onto the GPIO pins. So pins are the the kind of major friction point, but beyond that, it's really just kind of a snap-together project
0: excellent and so that's a possibility for people and then there may also be i mean this this could even be a business idea for people out there if you're in a country where maybe you want to help improve the access to bitcoin you could basically manufacture this and sell it to people who maybe they're at one step l- lower in terms of the commitment or time commitment they're willing to put in to figuring it out you, you might be able to make money just by selling this as a product to people right
1: yeah and i I'd, I'd point out um we have a couple different versions of a 3D printed enclosure that houses all the components, and those, along with all the software, the 3D models are fully open source. Um, the whole pro- project is under an MIT license, so if somebody in, you know, Guatemala or El Salvador wanted to spin up, kind of like a, a cottage. Manufacturing operation and source the components. Um yeah, that's that's absolutely something that that I would I would love to see.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's really interesting as well, because it brings up the difference between being a project versus being a product, right? Because I guess you see yourself as starting a project here. And the idea is that you would like to we would like to see more and more people I mean, along with the broader Bitcoin project, we want to see the proliferation of this broader idea and part of that means some of it some of it has to be commercialized and so that means other people can take the project and commercialize it and in doing so help spread the word and it 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 brings back benefits for everyone
1: right and seed signer has has been i can't emphasize enough how much of a collaborative project it's been even from the very beginning when i was just tinkering around with hardware uh stepan from
0: Step, stepan snijderf
1: yeah he was enormously helpful so in uh and i should also mention we use a library called mbit that he uh, wrote himself and that he maintains and to my knowledge they use that inspector diy as well but it's um like a lower level python library that handles a lot of the heavy lifting between uh, the bitcoin protocol and kind of higher level python functions and he was immensely helpful in terms of me being a novice coder, asking him all sorts of boneheaded questions about how to implement his library into what I was trying to do. Uh, can't emphasize how, how supportive he was, as well as Moritz with Spectre. He's been you know, an enormous friend of the project and, and kind of helping even get the word out about it on Twitter and kind of giving me advice on how to uh, make strategic decisions with the project. Um, I mentioned... Nick and Keith before, who were kind of the two primary developers that uh, jumped in, um, especially Nick very early when with my super basic coding skills, um, the code was not optimized. It wasn't conventionalized in a way that, you know, Python coders would recognize. Uh, I, I didn't have a lot of knowledge of structure. And Nick is a coder by trade. That's his day job. And he came in pretty early on. This is a few months ago and rewrote the whole code base so that it conformed to Python structure. And it was in you know syntax that other Python developers would recognize and be able to work more easily with. Keith has jumped in with a lot of creative, super creative UI uh, improvements, like with an improved keyboard to make that process of entering the seed words a lot easier and less painful. He also came up with the seed QR feature that I was talking about. But beyond those guys, there's another guy named Richard who is... Uh, in Europe, who has been a huge help with the 3D printing aspect of this and getting the cases out to people in Europe so that, you know, we can avoid so much VAT and uh, avoid shipping costs and everything else. Like the the website, we have seedsigner.com that somebody reached out to me, uh, a developer whose name is Jay in the Philippines, and he has taken the lead with the website. He has another uh, guy named Jonathan working with him that they have they really built the website from scratch. I I provided the content and some of the direction, but they have been a huge help. There's a guy named Jan R who's uh, a European guy who's leading the charge with our, uh, what I was talking about before with a custom operating system image that kind of gets out all of the Raspberry Pi OS stuff. It's a custom Linux build that will allow us to streamline the boot process and to be able to remove the memory card after boot and do some of the things I was talking about. A guy named Easy, who his day job is in, um, he's a user interface designer, and he's helping us in a future version. We're going to overhaul the UI because right now it's a very basic, almost DOS-like UI where you just use the arrows to select things. And he's going to make it much more approachable, much more intuitive, and even like a, a guy in South America who um, his Twitter handle I think is Shadows Lewis does graphic design, and he came up with our logo. So I I want to. Like commend all those people for jumping in, especially early in the project when it wasn't clear whether or not this thing was going to go anywhere, and uh, offering their assistance with so many different aspects of the project. So that's like with what you talked about about being a project versus a product. I think there's kind of elements uh, of both kind of ideas and what we're doing. I I kind of take a lead since Nick and Keith have stepped stepped in with the coding. I've taken a step back from the technical stuff and I'm more in a position where I'm you know being the the github repo maintainer and I manage our Twitter presence and I coordinated the website and that kind of stuff and with a product it's kind of interesting versus a project like we do sell components to help uh, support some of the costs associated with the project itself but we're really not trying to sell anyone anything um, if you want to if you want to buy the parts and build this thing like you don't need anything from us you can just download the software, order the components and build it yourself. But at the same time, there is kind of like a marketing aspect to it. And you have to convey the, the device and the project in such a way that it gets people excited. Like people see the functionality and they see the device and maybe they, you know, I think Bitcoiners kind of have a little bit of uh, an attachment to physical devices that are associated with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is, of course, a, a virtual good. So hardware wallets, swag, t-shirts, I I think Bitcoiners are into all that kind of stuff because they're physical representations of this thing they're so passionate about. But with the project, it it really, um, it takes time and engagement with people to communicate the value proposition that I think we're offering and to get them excited about having that same like little magical experience the first time that they scan a QR code in and then approve a transaction and scan it back into their laptop. you have to get people excited to at least just build it, and even beyond that, like want to help contribute to it because it's 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 a collaborative effort for sure.
0: Yeah, that's great to see and to hear that there are people all over the world contributing to the project. And then, uh, yeah, as you as you mentioned, speaking from a product perspective, there's marketing and there's all sorts of other aspects involved. Because look, the general person out on the street who is just trying to start learning about Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin, it might be quite difficult to get them over the line on, hey, use this project to store your Bitcoin. But if somebody were out there as a company selling it as a product, well, then maybe that's a bit easier for them to drive with. And, you know, of course, we can sit here uh, saying, no, everyone should just be, you know, being able to fully DIY. I think the reality is a lot different, right? Because if you if you think what percentage of the population would use a project versus what percentage of the population would use a commercialized product that there's a company there to, uh, you know, to yell at if something goes wrong, or to give them customer support and things like that?
1: Right, and it's getting to the point where um, you can purchase a seed signer assembled, like you've alluded to. It it dramatically expands our audience in terms of right now. If somebody maybe sees me on Twitter, sees a device demo of the of seed signer being used, and think thinks like, wow, that's really something cool that I'd like to try but maybe they don't have the time or, you know, the interest in in building it themselves when we get to the point that they can go from, Hey, that looks really cool to, I can, you know, purchase one and get it several days later in the mail. That's, that's really going to dramatically expand uh, our potential audience. And I'd also note um, I've kind of been moving in that direction over the last, even just the last several days, probably within the next, we'll say two to four weeks, I'm going to have the kind of component quantities on hand, I think to o- start offering it for sale uh, probably worldwide. Um, there are also some people in Europe that are uh, in touch with me about spinning operations up there because, you know, it's a lot of people, the VAT in Europe is a, is kind of a pain for people that have to deal with. And then there's the shipping times in a COVID world are a little bit longer than I think they have historically been. So, um, I, I have a square store currently where we sell the uh, enclosures and I also sell pre-soldered uh, Raspberry Pi zeros. That was kind of a way of removing some of the friction for people who wanted to build it. Um, the cases are also available for sale on crypto cloaks. Um, there's a, a version of the case called an orange pill that they sell, which was the, the earlier version of the enclosure. And I've moved to a simple, more streamlined version of uh, a 3d printed enclosure that's more optimized for fast, cheap and easy deployment in places like El Salvador. And that's what I'll be using to offer the assembled devices for sale, such that uh, the one thing they won't include is a memory card because I really wanna encourage people to write their own firmware image. I think that's important. And it also encourages them to be able, uh, to be familiar with how to update the device because we're, we still are at a place where we have some really great features in the pipe. And I want people to be, be comfortable writing the software and updating the software so they can get access to the, the latest features. But um, beyond connecting a micro USB cable and popping a memory card in, it'll be an assembled device so people can kind of just hit the ground running and start playing around with, with
0: multi-sig. Yeah, that's great to see. And I'm also curious how, what your experience has been like with the QR codes because in my experience playing around with various you know setups and QR code wallets, mm-hmm. in some cases I've had issues getting the QR code to scan and so from my understanding this can be if say the screen is not a high res one or if the webcam is not good enough on an on a low quality laptop or device sometimes there can be issues around scanning the QR or sometimes it can be a lighting thing as well so you need to make sure you're in good lighting and so that the QR code reads easily what's been what's your experience been with QR codes there
1: so there is uh, a bit of nuance in and- I'd call it skill development with the QR exchange process. We are forever working with uh, the different multi-sig coordinators um, in any way we can to kind of optimize that process because there are a lot of variables that go into it in terms of the QR density that's displayed on your laptop and the density that's displayed on Seed Center, because the more dense that the QR is, the more uh, information it can contain and the fewer frames say so you have to scan back and forth. But if it gets too dense that can get a little more difficult to scan it back in. So we're forever kind of trying to find the optimized uh, default settings for people and then also giving people the option to tweak the settings. In terms of uh, uh, beyond frame rates and QR density, uh, with our screen, it's not something that a lot of people think to do, but it makes a dramatic difference in terms of ambient light. If you're holding the cider screen up to your webcam and for some reason uh, it's there's a glare or it seems like it's too dark. If you slightly clockwise or counterclockwise rotate the screen, and I've had lots of other people like kind of rave that, that this solved a problem that they've been wrestling with. Somehow with the pixels line up or whatever, how they're <clears throat> exiting, maybe it has to do with how the light is exiting the screen, but if you just rotate it slightly, it resolves a lot of those glare and light issues. I'm not sure if that's the case with some of the other uh, air-gapped QR devices out there but that's a a big uh uh kind of that that's a great technique to improve the process with ours. So like with anything though, it's practicing. So get on testnet, um set up a wallet and just start making transactions. I that's well within the reach of a lot of people. Um just to start getting more comfortable with it. I always encourage people to before you start putting live funds on mainnet or or if you do start on mainnet. Start with small amounts and get comfortable with that QR exchange process. Whether it's using a seed signer or a DIY or Cobalt Vault or a passport or you know whatever people are working with, always get comfortable and practice with your uh, your hardware.
0: Yeah, yeah. Interesting tip there around uh, rotating the device. Uh, that maybe that that'll be the new uh, Bitcoin QR dance move uh, inspired <laughs> <laughs> inspired by the QR dance. Um, but I'm also curious. As you mentioned, it is a stateless device. What about the concept of registering your multi-sig quorum? So I guess maybe just backing up just for listeners who aren't familiar, when you create a multi-sig, if you haven't done it before, typically you might, if you're using Spectre or Sparrow, you might ingest in the public keys of each of the three wallets and then it will then spit out back uh, a multi-sig quorum uh, QR or SD card uh, thing to basically send it back into the wallet, so it knows who the other signers are, and basically gives it some info on how to sign the transaction correctly. How does that work with seed signer? So with seed
1: signer, the uh, necessary information to sign the transaction has has to be communicated because it's a stateless device. It has to be included in the PSBT every time that's. Um, that's communicated from the coordinator to seed signer. So there is a little bit of extra information that has to come through that provides the necessary descriptors for seed center to be able to, to uh, properly add the signatures. That's something that again, uh, step on from, from, uh, Spectre. yeah, I'm sorry. From Spectre was super helpful working with us when we, they were the first platform that we had like a dedicated hardware profile on so that when you fire up, uh, Spectre and you want to create a multi-sig seed signer actually and appears as one of the options in there. Um, but also uh, Craig from Sparrow has been great to work with as well. He uh, let us ship him a, a test device because he didn't have access to the components where he is and we shipped him kind of a pre-built seed signer that he was able to kind of play around with and, and optimize the hardware profile that is uh, on their platform for seed signer as well. So it's it's uh, like I said, the, the the coordinator developers have been really great to work with because on both of our ends, we want users to have the best experience possible. And we want to encourage a diverse ecosystem of signing devices so that uh, nobody is locked into one particular project or one particular manufacturer. I, I think that's in everybody's best interests.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. And so it's like this open ecosystem with lots and lots of choice. And lots of lots of different possibilities, and people can mix and match the different components, whether they're using Spectre Desktop as their coordinator wallet or as Sparrow as their coordinating software wallet. And um, so, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that as well around the stateless aspect, because that's one area where different wallets will have different ways of doing it. So, if you're registering a multi seed quorum into the cold card, you, yeah, it's got that little special, special, um, uh, Re-ingesting back in, right, because it can maintain a state. Or um, the right. Kobo, which is now the the keystone, or rather, you know, the the creator uh, created the keystone. Um, similar kind of thing where you would then ingest back in the registered multi sig quorum. And I guess this is where you know having a relationship and working with the coordinator software. You know, people like you know, Stepan and and Ben Kaufman of Spectre, and working with um, you know Craig of Sparrow, that the wallet knows oh, I need to actually, if if, you're, if I'm dealing with a seed signer, I actually need to feed it the multi-sig quorum in the, inside the QR uh, that has the PSPT in it, as opposed to for the other devices where it might not do that, right? It, I guess it feeds it a different thing based on what hardware wallet it is coordinating with.
1: Right. And there are, I, I can also point out, there, there are standards that are kind of converging um, within the whole air-gapped QR kind of space. Uh, there's a, a standard called a UR2 standard that's been developed um, that allows for some fault tolerance in terms of missing QR frames and tries to smooth that process out so it's not uh, it's not a process where you feel like you have to capture every single frame. There's some tolerance built into it so such that the data is spread out in the different QR codes so that you, if you miss a frame here and there, you can still gather all the necessary information. Um, and I think as... I think there are going to be more multi-sig coordinators that support air gapped QRs coming online, like over the next year, um, which I think is, I think that's a, that would be a very welcome development, especially in the mobile realm, because that's really the kind of platform that the people in El Salvador uh, can use because um, it's probably no surprise to you or anybody listening that in El Salvador, they don't have as many nodes. Like it's not a a super common thing unless you're a hardcore Bitcoiner there to have your own node. So they're going to, be relying on a lot more of these kind of like Uncle Jim setups where you have kind of a trusted blockchain information provider. And right now the only mobile based um, coordinator that I'm aware of is uh, Blue Wallet and they have Blue Wallet vaults that are very similar to uh, what Spectre and Sparrow do. And that's a a great tool with kind of a a semi-trusted setup. But considering that, you know, even, laptops. We take it for granted having access to a laptop, but most people in those kind of areas are interacting with the Bitcoin, Bitcoin protocol through a mobile phone. And likely they're going to start with a custodial lightning wallet. And hopefully over time, as they transact more in Bitcoin and they see the price appreciation, they're going to want to start to use Bitcoin as a savings mechanism. And when they accumulate a certain amount of Bitcoin, they're going to become, like we all do, less and less comfortable with that Bitcoin staying with a third-party provider and they're likely going to want to settle back to the main chain in a more independent sovereign way, and or at, at least in a, a sovereign way to where it's not a third party custodial kind of uh, entity that that can access your funds. So Blue Wallet is a great example of something that is it's still kind of an Uncle Jim setup where you're using their interface to access blockchain data, but it's not a custodial sort of setup to where you are truly customing your own your own Bitcoin that way to, in a multi-sig, being able to use AirGap QR. So I, that's a long roundabout way, but I, I really, if there are any developers out there who are mobile developers and are looking for a project, we really need more multi-sig coordinators that are primarily mobile-based and that are fully featured and that have access to uh, features like test nets, multi-sig, AirGap QR, all that kind of stuff. So um, just kind of a... Uh, shout out there
0: yeah that's a a really good call out i think because essentially what we what we need is like a mobile version of specter desktop or a mobile version of sparrow basically and obviously blue wallet is playing a little bit of that role for now but it would be good to have more and more choice there and i could imagine as this thing grows and builds out like as an example taking the el salvador example as you mentioned earlier a lot of Salvadorans will probably start with Chiva, right? Which is their government Mm -hmm. lightning wallet. It's a custodial wallet. It's KYC. It's all of that. Um, And so they'll probably start with that. Or they might be using sort of like a Bitcoin Beach style wallet. And so it'll start in a more custodial lightning way. And then maybe as number goes up and as the number of sets uh, hodled rises, then they would rather start thinking, well, it's time to get a non-custodial wallet. And that might be like a phone wallet. Um, But even then they might be thinking, well, once it rises enough, you might be thinking, I don't want to keep too much on right. my phone. I want to keep it on a hardware wallet. And then that is where the seed signer can come in and either be part of their single signature setup or part of a multi-signature setup. But in order to facilitate that, what's needed is ideally mobile phone wallets that can do multi-sig. So right now it's blue wallet, but hopefully in the future, if we have more, you know, equivalents of mobile equivalents of Spectre and Sparrow, maybe that's the direction uh, the industry can sort of go in to make it accessible um, in, in the lower income countries. But also, I mean, and not just in the El Salvador's of the world, but sure. just elsewhere around the world, just to have more choice and more possibility for pe- for how people secure their coins.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, we keep talking about El Salvador and I think Bitcoiners, like I, I've been, uh, I first heard about Bitcoin in 2013 when I was actually working in the forensic lab. And, um, there's been this narrative for, you know, so many years that we've all been following Bitcoin, that Bitcoin can help people in third world countries and places where their currency is being debased and their purchasing powers being diminished, and they can save on their own without having to set up an account or ask anyone for permission. And we've been kind of banging this drum for years and years. And so to finally have uh, a country where it seems like, you know, if it's going to work, this is the place where it's going to be, uh, able to work. I, I think we all kind of get excited and keep referencing back to that. But like you said, like Bitcoin is for everybody everywhere in the world. And so
0: like, yeah, exactly. And so one thing to be frank as well, is that when you're in a low income or low, you know, uh, wealth situation, you might not have as much savings. And so it it's, it, it, you know, because you're living more hand to mouth, mm-hmm. but over time, hopefully, um, you know, you can sort of come up out of that. But in the meantime, there's, there's millions and millions of people around the world who do have savings and they want ways to easily and safely store that. And so obviously hardware wallets and having more choice around how we do hardware wallets and multi-sig is all part of that story. And, uh, as, as more and more people learn how to do these things, the more we popularize multi-signature for large amounts of coin storage, then it just also, uh, as, uh, uh, Michael Flexman says it, c- it might actually reduce the amount of overall attacks because if more and more people are using multisig criminals might be less likely to even try it
1: right it's if multisig becomes the standard then you know that significantly diminishes what do they call it the five dollar wrench attack where you know somebody can try to coerce you into to turning over your bitcoin if you're not able to do that there's less of an incentive for them to even try to coerce people from from uh you know giving up their Bitcoin in a, in a theft situation for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess one other question I've got just around seed signer and the project. In terms of people who might be thinking, oh, look, I'd like to use it, but what do I do if something goes wrong? Like, is there a technical support community? Is there like a Telegram chat or is there some way that I can get support or if some upgrade or some firmware update goes wrong, what do I do? Yeah,
1: we absolutely have a, a Telegram group. Um, I think it's coming up on... 350 members strong. Uh, there's a link in our GitHub repo. I think for whatever reason, there's not a link on the website yet. That That's an oversight. Um, but in terms of resources, we have, of course, seedsigner.com. We have the GitHub repo. So if you duck, duck, go or Google Seedsigner GitHub, it'll take you there for more resources. And we have a Telegram group of lots of people who are enthusiastic and who've already been through the process of uh, building one. And they're you know super... Willing to be helpful with questions that other people may have about building one, or for some reason, uh, I've encountered this bug, or for some reason, like I can't figure out how to set up X. Uh, it, it, it's a great place to. Bounce your of questions off of others and and get some uh, get some feedback.
0: Yeah, well, look, I think that's probably a good spot to finish it up here. So thanks very much for joining me, Seed. And uh, listeners, make sure you go and check out all the resources. And they will also be in the show notes, of course. So SeedSigner.com and all the other resources like the GitHub and the Telegram. Go and have a look. And uh, yeah, any final comments there from you? No,
1: it's just, this has been amazing to get the opportunity to talk to you and to kind of come full circle from what we discussed before about how your podcast being kind of the origin point for this and then coming back to get to to talk to you about it has been a a real
0: thrill fantastic well thank you get the show notes at slash 302 and as always make sure you share the show with your friends and family so they too can learn about bitcoin from the best in the industry thanks for spreading the message and i'll see you in the citadels